You're listening to Sascapes, a podcast featuring the stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. Metal Lake continues to be a major source of stories in the Sascapes podcast. I'm Kevin Power, and it's time for another Story Slam, this time recorded live at the Meadow Lake Library. The stories range in topics from childhood memories, cowboy poets, pap smears, getting lost on a mountain, and lost in translation, where one wrong word in a foreign country can leave you very misunderstood. You'll also hear a powerful story from a South African doctor now living in Meadow Lake. Gavin speaks of the cruelty of apartheid, feelings of guilt, and forgiveness. My undying thanks to Ton Marshall, programming clerk at the Meadow Lake Library, for your assistance in making this night a success. And a massive thank you to my dear pal Mary McCann, who you heard last season in episode 36. Mary, you're more than a quilting bag. You're a top-notch public relations whirlwind. Thank you for getting the word out on this event to just about every living person and thing in Meadow Lake and area. Okay, remember, gang, you had such a great time, you thought you might make it a monthly happening and get together to share stories. Now that's community engagement. My name's Mary, and the story that you re- you reminded me of something that was very special to me, and it's about stories of my father before the days of podcasts. And as a kid growing up, um, and as an adult, I had one of the best fathers in the world, just a good friend, and adored my mom. It was a wonderful, wonderful household to grow up in. And we would go camping every summer, and on the way home from our camping trips, or any long trip that we took, Dad would tell stories. I happened to love them. My brother and sister thought they were stupid. So I'd be the one in the back seat saying, Daddy, Daddy, tell me a story. And there were a couple of key favorite ones that he would tell. One was of the time he met my mom. Another was of the time, I was a horse crazy kid. Another one was of the time that he was made by his father to drive a team of horses across parts of southern Ontario in this blizzard and he almost froze to death. And the farm family that helped save his life and it was just this vivid story that was so vivid in my mind. And so as, you know, as the years went on, I remembered these stories, but I knew I didn't remember them just how he told them. They were different in my memory as I would relive what he told me. So one year, I was probably in my 30s or so, and uh, my birthday was coming up. And Dad, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of extra money in the day. And Dad always liked to get you something nice for your birthday. So he asked me what I wanted for my birthday that year. I said, you know, Dad, I'd like it if you would write me out a story. One of the stories you used to tell me, I'd like you to give it to me in writing. Because I want to have it and I want to remember, I want to remember how it was, not how I imagine you told it. And and he gave me that story. And it was the story of how he met my mom was the first story he gave me. And it's one of the most treasured gifts I've ever gotten. But one of the things that was an even bigger bonus about that story was that then 
he went on and he started to write other stories. He, he eventually gave me other stories that he had told us as kids. And then as, as he retired, he's a retired policeman, and as he retired, he bought himself a computer. He learned how to type on the computer. He could type on a typewriter, but he learned how to type on the computer. He took creative writing courses. He, it, it created this side of him. It let this side of him out, and he, he started to write these stories, and he would, he would submit them. He'd always had a dream of getting them into Reader's Digest or something like that. And, uh, and so I still have not only hard copies of these stories that my dad wrote for me, but I have them on a three-and-a-half floppy disk. <laughs> and so it's the stories my me that I wanted to hear and I wanted to remember and I wanted to treasure, and I have those treasures. And, uh, and it was really neat to see that it kind of was a gift that gave back to him because he took that on and, and really enjoyed doing even more of that. So... It was just really nice to have that come to mind when you spoke of your dad's mm-hmm. stories because they're incredibly special and I really treasure them. But it was really neat to see how it unfolded. And I, I still have this dream of one day submitting them somewhere and having those published for him. Sure. You know, so, yeah. So thanks for the memory. Thank you. Yeah. I don't have a story about me. And or I, I have a story about two women. One of the women I met, uh, she died when I was, I think, nine or ten. The other woman I never met at all. They were my grandmothers. Okay. My German grandmother and my German grandfather didn't live in Germany, they lived in Ukraine. And they escaped in the little Bolshevik revolution in about 1905, and they worked, he worked in a steel mill in France for a couple of years to save $28 so they could get on, a, on a, an empty cattle boat in Liverpool and shipped through to Yorkton, Saskatchewan. I mean, that's... They were literally off the cattle boat, onto the train, land land in Yorkton, Saskatchewan, all for $28. And and this was 1905. And uh, they had three children at the time, uh, two two children and an infant. The infant died uh, on the way, just outside of Yorkton. And immediately they stepped off the the train and they she went to work building a railroad and they lived in a little shack and they just existed for a while and then he worked hard enough that he got a team of horses and then he got could make more money and they moved up in the world. This happened fairly quickly and then they got a homestead off in the bush, a little place that doesn't exist anymore called Passwegan. And and so uh, he loaded his wife and children into a wagon and their supplies, and this was in the spring, and they went off into the bush to this homestead. And he emptied the wagon and took his wife and children into this clearing. This is where they, they were going to establish their, their home. 
and took the wagon box off the wagon and turned it upside down. And that's where my grandmother and her children lived for the rest of the summer while he went back to Yorkton to work on the railroad with his team and horses. Tough, tough woman. I mean, really tough. And she carved out uh, a, a garden plot, and she survived with her children and mosquitoes and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Now, my Ukrainian grandmother came to this country at about the same time, and this is the one that I never met. She she died long before I came into the world. Um, my Ukrainian grandmother... Uh, at about age 16 back in the in Ukraine had been married off to an old guy who had some money and he died so she had a little bit of money and she had a little bit of education and she married her childhood sweetheart who happened to be illiterate and God only knows what his parentage was um and and they got married, and they ended up in Saskatchewan, in the bush, on a farm. And, of course, he went out to the railroad to go to work to make some money and left his wife and children. They had a little house in, this, in, in the bush. Well, they couldn't even write back and forth because he couldn't read. Uh, they had no means of communication, and uh, there was my grandmother, and she had one child, little girl, about uh, about three years of age, and she was very pregnant and living off, off in the bush by herself, with all alone, nearest neighbor a couple of miles away, and the house caught on fire and burned to the ground managed to save out of this fire the uh, Russian army greatcoat that my grandfather had. This was one of his souvenirs of having been in the Russian army. And she threw the greatcoat over a clump of willows, and that's where she and her daughter lived after the house burned down. And that's where her baby was born. <laughs> her second child born. <laughs> it's a crazy story. I mean, these were tough women. Any time that I ever think that I've got a problem in my life, I have to think about these women who, who were just so powerful. And... Uh, uh, Women, you never know what's going to happen to you. <laughs> I'm Annalise. Good German name. Indeed. Yeah. I'm going to talk about my school days. We were nine children, and we lived four and a half miles from school. And in the summer, we rode our horses. We didn't have saddles or Horse blankets, just, I guess, the sweat poured into our jeans, and we wore them all day and didn't seem to know the difference. Well, mine was 
a Shetland pony and stubborn as heck. I don't know why I had to ride that stubborn mule. <laughs> so we lived on the top of a hill and we went down to the river and we'd water the horse and he'd plump in there, cool off to have a bath before he made his journey. So of course I got sort of soaking wet. Well, off we went to school. In the winter, we had a, a caboose with a, a door at the back and a little heater in the front and little windows and two seat, uh, each seat on either side, and my brother Hans would drive. Well, when we'd meet someone on the road, a, a vehicle, that is, I'd get in front and hold the horse, and this little bugger... He jumped over top, knocked me down. I could have been run over by the cutter, but I guess I went in the middle and the snow was soft enough that I pushed down. And then another time we were going and and the pole got loose and it rammed into the snow and it, we flipped right so the door was on the back and the mm -hmm. stove was there and I don't know, we didn't get burnt or hurt, so somehow I guess we got on the level again. So that was the school days. And uh, we never walked or rode a bicycle to school. It was always with horses. And then just one other story. When I was a kid, we had choir practice every um, Friday evening. So we'd go to the church and have choir practice, and this hired lady went along. And I don't know, it was pitch black on a Halloween night and kind of eerie to start with, and... We were walking and singing and whistling away, and all of a sudden, someone in the ditch just roared, and we just were so scared, but never did find out who that was, or, but we, we lived, you know. So that's my little story. Yeah, my name is Gavin. I have... Um, like most of you, I think I have several stories. I have a, I have a really funny story, and I have, a, I have some serious stories. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, so I'll start with a funny story. So most of you guys know I'm a physician in town, um, and I, I just I've been wondering since I got the email, why do we love to tell stories? You know, and um, I I really love telling stories. I love sharing with my children, and I think part of it is arrogance, maybe loving to hear your own voice. Part of it is trying to get out what's in your heart and just a need for people to hear it. My first story is I um, started working at the clinic. I'm 45 now, and I was 32 when I started working. And I've been here just a short while, a few months, trying hard to impress, uh, do a good job. Like everybody, you always want to do a good job. And um, I walk into the consulting room, and there's an elderly lady, and she's about 74 and so the story goes that I don't remember her name. I've never met her since, thank goodness, it was the first time in the last time I ever met her, but she wanted a pap smear. And um, my first thought was, why would a 74-year-old lady want a pap smear? <laughs> but I asked her and she said, sure. So I, was, I said, do you realize you don't need one? And she was like, no, I, I prefer to you know, do the complete and be healthy. So I was like, sure, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll do that for you. So we have... As, as a measure of security or, or for the patient and for the physician, especially if you're a male physician, there's always an assistant in the room with you, and it's a lady assistant. 
So my assistant, her name is Ruth, and she's with me. And and so um, the lady who's my patient, 74, she probably weighs about 80 pounds soaking wet. And she um, she's lying in the position with a towel over, and I come to the edge of the bed and have all the instruments to do the, the, the examination, and I but she's too far up on the bed. So I ask her, could you please move down? And she's like, okay. And she now she's elderly and her hips are sore and she's struggling. She moves down and I, I said, it's not enough. Could you, could you please move down a little more? And she's feisty. You know, she's like, you know, okay, but how far do you need me to move down? I was like, I'll tell you when. So she keeps moving. And so her bottom was probably just two inches short of where it needed to be. So I said, ma'am, can you please just move down? Just... And she's, for goodness sake, young man. And she lifts her butt, buttock up and she moves down and she slips off the bed. <laughs> and she slides off the bed and she lands square in my <laughs> And now, not only is she's completely naked, the blanket was left behind on the bed and here's this 74-year-old lady naked sitting across my lap. And, and my first thought is, why don't I have my lawyer's number on speed dial? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't know I'm looking across at my sister and she's lying against the wall laughing so hard I didn't know what to do and this old lady without batting an eyelid put her arms around my neck and she said imagine if your wife could see you now <laughs> uh, uh, so she was so tiny I just looked it up <laughs> anyway so that was my funny story um, the serious story is, um, this is something, maybe it's a little bit of counseling, so you guys could probably send me a bill for this, but um, as you can hear from my accent, I am South African, and I grew up in the in the very oppressive apartheid regime, under which people suffered for a very long time. Um, black people suffered tremendously. Uh, white people lived a privileged life. So even if you were middle class or middle lower class, you lived the life of privilege. Black people would be restricted to living in what in Canada would be referred to as reserves, what we call them townships in South Africa. And um, if they were to, there was a curfew. So if they weren't there nine o'clock at night, they could be thrown in jail. They could, without a trial, without justification, and never know when they'd be going home again or seeing family, if ever. Um, It... It was a regime that was hidden from us as white people. We, Looking back, I don't know how we did not know what was happening around us, but it was just somehow hidden from us. Um, there were people who knew what was happening, but most of us had no idea. And I was just a little boy when I grew up, and I, I have mixed feelings. I have feelings of anger and unforgiveness towards our government and to the people who ruled the country and how they let us down and lied to us, all in the name of religion, believe it or not. Um, And I've never been able to express how how my bitterness towards that, but some of my experiences that helped with my healing was when, um, because I feel the reason why I think I need healing is because I feel guilty. The the, the white supremacists were predominantly uh, of Dutch origin, and they have Dutch names, and I have a Dutch name, even though I grew up very British, very English in South Africa. The white people are divided up into Dutch origin and, and British origin. Um, so despite my Dutch name, I, I grew up. And so even in Canada, when I meet a black man from South Africa and I tell him my last name, I feel guilty and I'm afraid and nervous because 
he knows where that name comes from and what that name represents. And um, it made me think of experiences that I had as a child. And I remember being alone at home, coming home from school. My parents were at work, and we had a we had um, a maid. And not everybody in South Africa has maids because it's so cheap to afford labor that black people come and do. So they'll work in your house, clean your house, cook your meals for you for $5 a day, $10 a day. So she would work, Maria would work at our house, and she was faithful, she worked hard, she wouldn't steal, she was kind to us, she was kind to my brother and myself, even though we were the children of the white oppressors that oppressed her. Um, and um, so when school holidays would come around, she would bring her son to visit and her son was my age, and I was about seven, and his name was Opa. Now, Opa in Dutch means grandfather, but that was his first name. And um, him and I played just like children. I had no idea that he was black, and I had no, he had no idea I was white. We were best buddies. And one day, Maria came to work, and she was quiet, and, but Opa wasn't with her. And I'd been waiting all morning, when's he coming, when's he coming? And... Um, I asked her, I said, where's Opa? Why didn't he come play today? She's like, no, he's, he's not feeling well today. I said, oh, is he sick? And she said, no, no, he's not sick. I said, so what, doesn't he want, doesn't he want to play with me? But, you know. And she said, no. She said, I shouldn't be telling you this, but I'll tell you a story that happened to him yesterday. I said, what happened to Opa? And she said, well, he was at school, seven years old, sitting in the classroom, and amongst the black people, there are different factions, different tribes. And it was in a very violent time in South Africa. So the Zulus and Khazars are the two main groups. And he was a Khazar, this little boy. And he was in a school where mainly Khazar kids go to school. And a bunch of Zulu men came into the school with AK-47 rifles. And they just, for no reason at all, they walked into the classroom and they mowed the whole classroom down these little kids. And Opa saw them coming, and him and his buddy jumped out of the window and ran. And after these men had murdered the teachers and the children, they leaned out of the th- and they started shooting at him and started running after him. And he ran into the township to his parents' home. He ran into the house, and he hid under the toilet, um, between the toilet and the wall, because the houses are made of brick. And he hid under there while they were, while they were just destroying the house with these AK-47s. And they were trying to murder the seven-year-old boy who had absolutely committed no offense except for the fact that he was born Causa. And and I couldn't believe what had happened to him. And the night before, I was lying in a warm bed with an electric blanket. My mother hugged me when she put me to bed. She gave me some warm milk. And I woke up in the morning had breakfast and everything was just fantastic and the way it should be in a child's life. And Opa woke up with a fear of death in his heart and he was afraid to go and play with his friend because he didn't want to leave the house. And his mom couldn't comfort him. She couldn't take him for counselling. She couldn't take him to a doctor. She had to go and work so that she could pay to make ends meet. Um, I never ever saw Opa again. So I don't even know if Opa was alive or what happened to him or Hey, it's Kevin. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just a quick reminder that the Sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app 
or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link. On the Sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called Sascapes Plus. You can't miss it. There's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it. I'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going. When Sascapes launched in May 2014, it was the first podcast in the province celebrating arts, culture, and heritage. In fact, you'd have been pretty hard-pressed to find any Saskatchewan podcast. So I'd like to think that we paved the way. It's been because of your support that this podcast is now in its ninth year. Okay, that's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. And um, and the story goes on that a few days later, my parents had hired another uh, person, a, a black man, to help paint the roof of our house. So this story only dawned on me later on. It actually dawned on me while I was working in Canada when I was thinking about it. And he, we have corrugated iron roofs that rust. So every 10 years, you have to scrape the paint off and repaint them. It's a big job. And no white man would lower himself to doing it. So you'd leave it for a black man to do who'd do it for any amount of money that you'd give him. And there was this young guy in his 20s. I don't even remember his name, but let's call him Isaac for him. And Isaac worked hard on that roof for days and weeks because it's hot. The sun in Africa is hot. That roof is metal. His feet were burning, but he never complained. And he painted this roof. He scraped it off first and then he painted it. Um... And I remember coming home from school and seeing him on the roof and thinking, whoa, that must be tough. Going into the kitchen, making him lunch, nice cold pop with ice in it, take, climbing onto the roof, walking over to him. I said, hey, Isaac, you want to take a break? I made you something to eat and something to drink. And he was like, sure. And he, he sat down on the edge of the roof. We sat right on the ed, edge and the, the gutter was right here. And I sat with my toes in the gutter like this and he sat and I gave it to him and he sat there drinking and this was at a time black people especially the Ndebele they would that's another tribe they would have these big earrings you know the, the kids do that today with these big loops but they would have these big earrings and he had that and so I asked him like, why would you do that and he's and I'm laughing and he's laughing and he's telling me about his tradition and we sat there for an hour just visiting back and forth it was and I don't even remember everything we spoke about I just remember the earrings you know, and um and then when he was done, he thanked me and he carried on working and I went down. And, but years later, I was thinking, you know, I wonder how I would have felt if I was Isaac. I was a 22-year-old man and I have a seven-year-old kid bringing me food and, and taking care of me because I struggle to take care of myself because of this regime that I live in, that I have no control of myself. And I was like, you know, if I was Isaac... I would have been so tempted to go, hey, and push the seven-year-old kid off the roof, jumped off the roof and walked away because I would have been so bitter and so angry. But Isaac didn't. He thanked me. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Just a reminder that there are several ways that you can listen to all of the Sascapes episodes. The easiest way is with the Sascapes app that you can download for free from the App Store or Google Play, depending on your device. 
You'll even get notifications when a new episode is available. Other ways to hear the podcasts are downloading them from the iTunes Store, Stitcher Radio, or through the TuneIn Radio app. Again, all for free. You can stream the Sascapes podcasts individually at www.iheartculture.ca. Thanks to all of you who have been writing your comments and reviews. It's always great to hear from you. And now, back to the podcast. My name is Barb, and um, I came to Metal Lake in 2000, and I was very acquainted with sewing, but I saw all these beautiful quilts that these ladies up here make, and I thought, why, you know, why am I not doing that? How do you do this? So I got asking around, and I worked at the lodge at that time. And there was this lady, um, Blanche. Her husband was in the lodge, and she was there every day taking care of him. I got to talking to her about, and she was a magnificent quilter. She just did beautiful work. And she sort of took me under her wing, and we got talking. And she started explaining, you know, you need this quilt frame. And I said, what's a quilt frame? And she says, you don't know what a quilt frame is? And I said, no, I don't have a clue. And she says, oh, well, I have one set up in my apartment right now, and I'm working on a quilt. So if you would like to take the time to come over for tea later on, I will explain, you know, what we do with the quilt frame and how it works. And I was so excited. I went home and I told my husband, I said, you have to come with me because you're going to have to build me a quilt frame. (laughs) (laughs) And so he said, okay, I'll come. So we go over to Blatches that evening and um, she shows me her quilt frame and this gorgeous quilt she's working on. She explained how, you know, you attach the lower layer, and then you put your middle layer in between, and you put your upper layer on top of it. And then you have to hand quilt this quilt, and it's humongous, like it's like as big as this whole room. And I can't imagine, like, how do you do this? So anyway, she starts telling me how you, you start rolling it from one, you start it on one side, and as you finish quilting, you roll it, and you have to be very particular. And she always said, no knots, no knots. You don't make any knots. You can't make knots. (laughs) I thought, well, how do you keep the threads in there? (laughs) Anyway, she was very patient with this silly woman. And she got me, you know, into quilting. And I, I really, you know, I really appreciated her so much more for that. And I really felt guilty because she did pass away from cancer. And I didn't even go to the hospital to see her. And I really felt bad about that. She was such a giving lady. Anyway, that's my story. Mm. Sure. <laughs> I'm a cowboy poet. I, um, I'm also a veterinary technician. And um, I have this story, and I've tried to bend it and twist it into a poem, but I just can't seem to do it. So maybe I should, maybe it should just be a story. Like, you know, because poets 
there's lots of cowboy poets that actually tell stories. So this is the plan. It's going to be a story. So you are my... I'm going to give it a try. So my late father-in-law, Omer Nadon, passed away at the age of 83 years old. And he still had his cattle. Lord knows we tried to get him to sell, but he just wouldn't. And... In the later years, he didn't really spend any time with them. So it makes you wonder, but this is how it was. And they, they had become just like buffalo. They were like wild. And I remember after he passed away, and my husband has a sister, so they had to sell the cattle, of course, to divide things up. And um, he had to literally trap them in the watering bowl pen because, like, they'd see someone coming, and they'd just be headed for the hill, tails in the air, you know, at 40 miles an hour so. He finally trapped them in the watering bowl pen, and one cow was on the other side of the gate when he slammed the gate shut. And heaven forbid that we would open that gate. Like, we put panels across and you know, barred them in, and, and uh, nobody was going to attempt to get that other cow in, in fear of losing the herd. And I think there was something like, I don't know, there was probably close to 80 head, and there was yearlings and calves and cows and animals that should have been sold and weren't and horns and it was anyway old grandma cow was on the other side of the fence so she stayed there and we sold the herd that was omers and we brought our cows over to winter at the farm we call it we live at the ranch the farm is larry's parents place so anyway we brought a herd over and she just had a bunch of friends there and we bring our cattle home to calf in the spring so we were bringing them home in the spring, and I was riding at the front of the herd, so I didn't really know what was happening at the back, but somehow or other, we called her Grandma Cow, somehow or other Grandma Cow ended up being very badly injured, and there was blood everywhere apparently, and she ended up just kind of laying down on the road, and we took the rest of the herd and came back for her later. And she had, we guess, probably stepped off the road and got torn on a culvert, because she was torn right from her knee all the way down to her ankle here. This huge flap of flesh, like tendons, and just, it was horrible. Eh? But we managed to get her loaded in the trailer and brought her home. And I dumped her off at the barn and put her in the maternity chute. And I cleaned up this wound and, and uh, wrapped it in cotton and duct tape. Duct tape, of course. We are Canadian. We shall use duct tape. But duct tape worked great. And I got it all wrapped up and I put her in a stall, nicely bedded and fed and watered her. And you know, she was she was actually um, one of the last holdouts of the of the original Hereford herd because she was, you know, about this high and legs about this long and she was just yeah, an old red face white faced old cow with the little nubby horns. I don't know how many times they've been cut off, but she had these little nubby horns I so after about three or four or five days, whatever, I had called Harry Bacon, the, the vet, and he came in, came the next day, and he just said, well, I can't do any more than that, he said. So I guess I had done a good job in wrapping it. So after about four or five days, I decided, you know, I've got to have a look at this wound and see how it's doing. And, and uh, so I'm slowly cutting it, and she's headed. I'm thinking, oh, she's just going to drill me, and I'm cutting and I'm cutting. And all of a sudden word of a lie. She reached out and she went. I will never forget that because, you know, people say that bovines 
are stupid, like, you know, the intelligence of a bovine, and they're just, they're meaning like that the animals are really quite stupid. And most of them really are not all that intelligent. But I will never forget when she licked me, because she knew I was helping her. And it was such an incredible experience, this old cow. So I packed manure out and packed hay in, and we kept her for probably three, four years after that, and old grandma cow gave us a calf every year, so... That's my story. <laughs> my name is Barb Moberly. I don't know what to talk about because I, I've been through so much in my life. Um, I grew up and I didn't understand English, Dene and Cree. But then when I started school, um, I lost my language because my mom wanted us to understand English with the t- so we can converse with the teachers. And at the time, I guess, maybe because she, she was in a residential school, she, um, I mean, I'll sit down, I can hear my voice. Anyway, she worked with the nuns, so I guess to her it was learn the English. Whereas my dad, he was a trapper and fisherman, so his language actually was Cree, but he spoke Dene and there was... Uh, other languages they like other people would speak so they can talk to others, you know, as they trapped or the thinking about me and school and losing my language. It's uh sometimes I I it was okay because I can understand things. I was the kid that sat and looked up the shelf for things to do. I taught myself how to swim, uh, read, you know, all these things I would spell, I would do all these. Um, I wasn't a ge- genius, if you want to say. I just did things I thought were right. Same thing as what you were talking about, give, uh, helping people. Like, it just was in you to, to go help uh, if somebody needed help. And then, as growing up, I'm like, um, I remember saying... At one time when school was, uh, I lost my name, and it was a letter because I didn't understand English, and of course the bigger kids were laughing at me, but uh, eventually it was um, going to school and I even helping kids in, in my class, because a lot of them, there was lots of dyslexic kids. Now and sometimes I have that in me, but there's my sister. Some of my brothers have it, and uh, I couldn't talk to my grandmother. I had little baby words, you know. Um, my dad would. I guess the saddest part is my dad. When before he passed away, I would always visit him, um, and he was telling the story in Dene. And I just, I had no clue. And nobody was around. I had no clue what he's saying. He's telling this long story, and I just let him tell it, because he speaks English to me. But at this time, he just thought, like, somebody come, you know, like, so they could tell me something. But I just left it. I just left it as that. I couldn't hear what he, whatever he said. And, um, but even... Telling stories, I tell stories to my kids. I tell them lots of things. Ask me questions, or sometimes I'll just tell them a story, even if they don't want to hear it. <laughs> um, 
But my mom never told me stories. I don't know if it's because of residential thing or it was just too much because that's how I feel sometimes like you only tell so much there's so much with you like all of you probably have something within you where you went where you've been and how I can come up here and sit and talk I used to be a kid that was so shy that I couldn't even say my name but somehow some way I just told myself like like why are you so shy? Like, even to go reach out, I was, I was scared because of things that were said to me and everything. And one day, I just it's just like you wake up. So now I can talk to people, even when I'm afraid. I'm like, no, I can walk through somewhere, even if it's a bunch of teenagers, whoever. And it's amazing how much people would actually talk back to you or they'll ask questions or you're just comfortable. And, you know, just... Thinking of um, where I come from. <laughs> so I'm glad for that. Anyway, I could tell so much more, but I'm getting off stage. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm third generation for this area, actually. My name is Eugenie, and my grandparents and my parents were pioneers in this area. So I grew up here in Bluebell, Saskatchewan. Bluebell is a community just west and a bit north of here. And as a teenager, I felt that I had a lot of encouragement in school to be a writer. I had a great English teacher, and he encouraged me. As an adult, I took uh, creative writing classes, and I wrote this. I think that everybody has a story to tell. And this is not my story specifically, but it's a story about things that touch my heart. It's about ladies who go through issues. <coughs> the second chapter actually is a, is a flashback of one of the characters, which very much describes my grandparents and parents' struggle in this community as pioneers. I mean, all of your parents and grandparents in Canada, I think, went through the same struggle of of coming from another country and establishing a home in a foreign land, right? And they had foreign languages, and everything was new and different to them. So this is my story, and I know that all of you here are storytellers, and we love hearing your stories. Um, my name's Greg. So I got lost on the side of a mountain. I... Uh, I uh, do an annual hiking trip with a buddy, um, and uh, we've done this, the first one when we were 13, and when the bus was pulling out of the station in Edmonton, my dad and his dad, his name's Gavin too, my dad and his dad looked really shocked, and Gavin's dad said, apparently what we heard later is, his dad said, well, I'd only let Gavin go because Greg's such an experienced hiker. <laughs> My dad said, Greg, Gavin's the hiker, isn't he? So we knew nothing. And out there we went, and we kept doing it for years after that. We refined our technique. We got better at it. But something happened to us in the last 15 years. He found a way to get healthier and healthier and fitter, and he runs marathons now. And I'm packing on 50 extra pounds, and I can't, I can't really keep up to him, with him. I try, 
And this summer I was uh, paddling with my friends and I turned out, ended up having two properties here. I don't know how it happened, but they're like three miles apart. So I walk up and down the road and I thought, oh, I'm going to be in shape for my buddy with that because I'm walking on the road. And maybe I had a little issue with preparation because I worked till 3 a.m. the night before I was going to meet him. And then I went in the office all day. I was supposed to meet my mom in Calgary in, in an old folks home for dinner or as you call it here, supper, at 5 p.m. Well, it's 3 p.m. I'm still in, I'm now in Makwa. How am I going to get to Calgary by 5? So I have to cancel that. I have to tell my, my buddy Gavin I haven't even left yet. I finally roll into Calgary about 10.30 p.m. And we haven't talked really much in the last year, so we pound back a few beers and we have lots to say and suddenly it's 2 a.m. Long story short, we don't get to the trailhead till 2 p.m. Meanwhile, there had been some issues also with equipment preparation because it, in addition to just still keeping working until 3 a.m. and then going to the office, I hadn't packed. I knew about this trip for three months and I had done nothing. So I took all my camping gear and I thrown it in the cab of the truck and I'll take care of it there well I didn't have my hiking boots we had to stop at mountain equipment co-op so I get a new pair mm. so we're on the trailhead by two and I can't keep up with them uh, my, my buddy Gavin and his third boy are always ahead of me and they're waiting and they're tapping their feet and, and I, I just feel like you know I don't want to be reminded that I'm not in good shape and I don't want to slow you down and Gavin came from a gung-ho hiking family in the 70s, and they were known for going super fast. And he's got a bit of that in him uh, from his family. And, uh, and so Gavin wants to keep going. And this gives you a sense of his personality. It's raining now. I can think nothing better than just curling up in my tent. He says, well, since it's raining, it's no fun to just be in a tent we'll just keep going then <laughs> and he asked me how I was and I said I am so tired I'm too tired to urinate it would take too much energy to unzip and whip it out and, and actually release my bladder I couldn't do it I was too exhausted should have been a sign to me but of course because he says yeah we'll keep going of course I have to agree so off we go I ended up lost on the side of the mountain. I didn't know the trail. Uh, he had done all the prep. Apparently the trail is called Gibbon Pass, where we had to go. The next day when I was staggering around looking for it, I kept calling it Gibson's Pass. <laughs> um, but I spent the night on the side of the mountain alone. And so we had this thing where he had this hiking call, which is, Ayo, you'd be walking along, he'd say, Ayo, and I'd say, Ayo, back. Well, so when I was really far behind them and I couldn't find the trail and was lost, I shouted, Ayo! And he shouted back. You could hear him on the top of the mountain, Ayo! But then he didn't come and get me. And I realized we had never discussed in 15 years what the hell Ayo means. <laughs> 
the last thing he told me later when we when we debriefed on it, he, he said, "Yeah, I heard you say, I found the trail." That's not what I said. I had said, "I can't find the trail." <laughs> Total miscommunication. So I'm alone there that night on the side of the mountain, and it starts to rain. And I'm too scared to eat anything because I had some other food, but it would make some smells too. So luckily I had a little stove and I made hot chocolate. And I got a little bit warm. And I thought, well, thank God I have a tent. And, oh, the other thing I should tell you is the boots were useless. When I was climbing up in the rocks with the cairn, I twisted my ankle because they were too soft. But at least I had a tent. But I didn't have tent poles. <laughs> so I, I wrapped myself in the tarp of this like, like tent as a tarp, and I just managed to hang on through the night. And I was thinking about a lot of stuff, and, and I got through the night. And uh, the next morning I got up, I thought maybe, like, maybe a warden would be there and a horse, like maybe poetry cowboy or something <laughs> there. And I asked the warden about it later, and he said, yeah, 30 years ago, we would have had a horse there with a warden, but cutbacks, you know, no, they don't do that anymore. But I met a guy on the trail, a seven-year fellow, who said, hello, I'm from the Shell Oil Retirees Hiking Club, and I'm here looking around for our big hike. Can I take your photo? And I don't tell him anything about what happened to me. <laughs> but the great thing is he has a map, and he shows me the trail, and I, I make it and rendezvous with my, friends, my friend and his kid the next day. So we, I did the full hike and got out. But the whole thing uh, got me thinking about about what happened, the lack of preparation, what I would need to do to do better. And I just want more of it. I absolutely want more of this. So we've decided we're going to do three hikes next summer, not one. And I realized that I'd been a bit of a, of a, a pack rat, wanting stuff instead of experiences. So, and I was always interested in different things. I was interested in blacksmithing. I have an anvil collection, and I've never made anything. <laughs> I have two cattle brands and no cattle. That really uh, makes the locals laugh, I can tell you. Um, and with these two properties, I just thought, okay, my job is, is, is serious, it's hard work, and, and um, then I'm going to come home and try to blacksmith or raise cattle. Oh, and dogs, I love dogs, but I don't have one. I have 12 dogs. What's with that? So um, I'll keep the dogs, but I decided everything else goes. And I'm going to get out on that mountain. I'm going to go out there and have those experiences. And it was a good thing for me to get lost. I'm really glad it happened. My name is Ton. Before I moved to Meadow Lake, I lived in South Korea for four years teaching English. And uh, I taught at a uh, fairly small university in way in the south. And uh, I taught mostly freshman English classes. That was a required class to graduate from the university. And a few other grad student classes or English education classes, that sort of thing. But we also, my university had a contract with the, um, the local education board to do the summer camps 
for the elementary kids and the junior high kids. And uh, so one summer I was uh, teaching, I think, well, teaching is a stretch. I was leading a grade five English camp and we would spend the morning in, in English class. So I guess I was actually teaching and, and the afternoons just doing fun things. So of course, if you're doing a summer camp, you're going to end up doing paper mache at some point. But. So my co-teacher and I had uh, gone shopping and gotten all the supplies that we needed and uh, she dropped everything off and she took off uh, back back to her apartment she was going to be picking up later in the afternoon picking up the, the activities later in the afternoon and I realized as she drove away that she drove away with all of the flour in the trunk of her car well crap I've got paper mache starting in 10 minutes and I have no flour so I remembered that uh, about three blocks away, there was a convenience store that also had a bit of housewares. Maybe they'd have some flour. So I head out. <laughs> I have minutes. So I rush into this store. Now, I had been in Korea for about, about a year at this point. So my Korean was fairly basic. I, I could make myself understood as long as I wasn't doing anything complex. So I rush in and I am running up to the counter and I say to the woman, and I said to her, excuse me, do you have any flour? And she looked at me and she said, and I said, and I said, never mind, I, I see it. And I ran over and I grab a couple bags of flour and I run back up to the counter and she bursts out laughing. And I'm thinking, that's so funny. Like, is it because I've got so much flour? Well, a little bit of setting. This university was in a village outside of what, by Korean standards, is a tiny city. 300,000, right? Tiny. People used to joke, that my Korean friends would joke that I, why would I live in the middle of the country like that? So, um, but, now this, this was just a couple of years ago. Um... For a good majority of my students, I was the first non-Korean they had ever interacted with. Korea is a very homogenous society. And uh, so this woman running this little convenience store, she would have a couple of English instructors that she might interact with if they happened to go into her store, maybe some foreign students, a couple of Chinese students at that university, maybe uh, you know, a couple of South Asian students. And um, so... <laughs> Because there weren't many non-Koreans there, we really stood out. And the word is Weigukin in Korean, and it literally means foreigner. Weiguk is foreign, in is person, foreigner. And we were uncommon enough that if you walked down the street, you would hear people whispering, Weigukin, maybe pointing <laughs> sometimes. You just got used to it. So all of that, remember, my Korean isn't great. So picture this woman. This woman is behind the counter. She's playing on her phone. She's doing something. And a foreigner, a sweaty, out-of-breath foreigner, rushes in. I had mixed up two words, you see. I rushed into her shop, and I breathlessly, in a really bad accent, said, Excuse me, where are your secrets? We're talking about about teaching and about kids and about you know getting drawing them out and you know 
over 16 years of classroom teaching, there were a few moments that I just treasure and that I'll never forget as long as I live. And one of them was the day I always put a question on the board in the morning for kids to think about and talk about throughout the day. And I don't know what was wrong with me. We just studied Egypt, so I was thinking about the Sphinx. And my kids were teenagers at the time, and they were watching Beavis and Butthead. And they were always talking about sphincters. So I (laughs) put the question on the board, would you rather be a sphinx or a sphincter? (laughs) And the grade sevens were a little bit curious. And they said, well, what is that? And I started laughing. I couldn't tell them anything. I just laughed. And the more they asked me, the more I laughed. And so they were curious. And they kept, they kept, you know, trying to see if each other knew. And, and nobody knew. And then about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the least likely person who would ever crack a book, a little ragamuffin girl, she goes, let's look in the dictionary. So they're all mobbing around the dictionary. And they're looking and they're reading the definition. And they don't know what that means. So they still didn't know. So I don't know at what point they, um, they figured it out. But when they figured out what a sphincter was, I could tell. Because they started yelling and it sounded like this. Oh, Mrs. Brown, you pervert. <laughs> so they were engaged that day. <laughs> Thanks for listening. The Sascapes podcast is created and hosted by Kevin Power for Sass Culture. Funding to the cultural sector is provided through the Saskatchewan Lotteries Trust Fund for Sport, Culture, and Recreation. For more information, visit iheartculture.ca and sasculture.ca. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. There's no end to the stories to be told. So, until next time...